It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you save lives or do you save the economy? For so much of this year, government policy has felt like a tug of war between the two. We must also acknowledge the stark reality of the economic and social impacts of another national lockdown. But for some families, the cost of not acting sooner has been unbearable. They chose the economy over people, don't they? We're just a statistic. That's what it is. When they pass the figures over to the government, they won't even say Cameron's name. It'll, It'll be just a number. The government's got a lot to answer for. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, an insight investigation. Did the second lockdown come too late? We've got six children. Cameron was the middle child. That's Jane Wellington, and she's telling me about her son, Cameron. If you've lost anyone to coronavirus, this may be a difficult listen. Cameron was 19. He was really fun to be around, energetic. He was good at everything he tried. Really artistic as well. He was a nice lad. He was a genuine lad. Cameron, who was the sportiest member of the family, was at the start of his career as a professional wrestler. He played a baddie in the wrestling, but it was that far from his real character. It was, it was really fun to be around. He liked to watch his football. He was on his computer to his friends a lot. He had a lot of time for his little brothers and sisters. He was really kind. Then, last month, out of the blue, Cameron caught COVID-19. In the cough, just started getting worse and he kept like struggling for breath. And eventually, after about, I think it was a week, uh, we had to take him up to the hospital and... This is where it all happened. When Jane left Cameron at the hospital, she thought he'd be home again in a few hours. Told him he'd be okay, and I says, uh, I'll pick you back up later. Probably just give you an X-ray on your chest, give you some antibiotics and nebulizers, and you'll be back home. We've been an hour's time. Told him I loved him, and he he walked in. I got back. I went back home while I was waiting, and within um, five minutes of me getting back home. The nurse told me to get straight back down. His oxygen levels is 10%, when they should have been 95 or over. They put him on the oxygen and he just never come, he'd never come back out of it. They said there was 
one one thing they could try. That's Norman, Cameron's father. Which was the dialysis machine, Marnie. Yeah. But he says, to be honest, we think it's too late for that. And I says, well, well, can't we try? He goes, well, he might bleed to death when we do it, but if you want us to try, we'll have a go. So they left us and they went and started doing that. They come back about an hour, hour and a half flight or something like yeah. that. Yeah. They said he's on the dialysis machine now. The next six hours are really critical. If he makes it through that, we'll talk about starting this new ECMO treatment. So we sat with him all night, watching his oxygen just slowly creeping up, bit by bit. But before they could put him on there, they had a meeting with us, down there and says, look, this is really touch and go, because when we try this treatment, this could kill him. But if, if we don't do it... we you got no choice. He's going to die anyway. So we give him permission to do that, Damien. Yeah, and but, we waited in a room, Damien, and the nurse, yeah. one of the nurses come running to us, telling us that he'd made the operation. And like we was allowed to stand in the corridor. And watch him walk past with him. Watch him run past with like, as they was taking him to Leicester um, Hospital, but we couldn't go up there. Yeah, and then they told us to go home. They found us a couple of hours later, Damien, yeah. saying that, He'd had a really rough trip. His, his heart really suffered through the moving about in the ambulance and, and stuff like that. And um, they needed to do an operation on his heart now, don't they? Yeah. Yes. So they said again, this this is this is the one that's really risky now. It's, it's either he might come through or he might not. But he did, don't they? Yeah. He come through that one as well. Told us to get some rest. Yeah, that was as much as they could do. Because we'll find you die by die and see how it goes. Then they found us early the next day, saying, can we set up a Skype account so we can show you around and, you know, you can see him on the camera for a bit. We was trying to talk to him. Obviously, he was in the coma, but they recommend trying to talk to him. So we, we did yeah. all that. And um, we thought everything was starting to pick up. But it was about... Another, say, half an hour after that. About 20 past nine in the morning. Yeah, they found us back up again, saying, you need to get down here quick. It's getting worse. Things are going downhill. That must have been such a difficult journey. Yeah, it, it was the worst, I've got to tell you. I was dreading it. Anyway, when we got there, we had to go straight into another meeting, didn't we? Yeah. Where they give us the bad news, really. They, they just says, look, we're sorry we've done everything we can. But his organs are failing now. I even asked them if they could take my organs and give them to Cam instead. But there's nothing else they could do. I said, you could take anything off me, just make sure they release. I said, you know, we're sorry we've done our best. We knew that anyway. They said his legs were starting to go as well, didn't they? Yeah. I said if he was to wake up now, we'd never walk again. God, that must have been so hard. Yeah. We just don't know what to do. He was had that much energy. He, yeah. he was amazing. He, he hadn't been to the doctors for years. He's the the only one in our family that, that was the fittest, really. Gotta say it. He was the sportiest. He'd try, he'd try anything, football, you know. <laughs> and he did. Uh, he did all them sports. He did rugby, judo, football, yeah. then the wrestling. He had a lot to live for. They told us in that room. They said we were sorry that you can go and sit with him for a. A couple of hours and then just tell us and we'll switch the machine off but 
he's not going to make it. He's, he's definitely going to die today. So just go and sit with him for a bit. So we went in and um, put the protection, two protection coats on, gloves, a face mask, a surgical hat, and a, a visor. And an air net and stuff. And then, yeah, the air net and everything. And they allowed us to sit with him. I mean, the staff was fantastic. Yeah. He was allowed to um, sit with Cam. We sat with him a few hours down there. Yeah. I held his hand and we was talking to him. And as we was um, talking to him, we noticed the colour going out of his hands. Yeah, it's like a bruising that was coming through, wasn't it? Yeah. Where all the capillaries was breaking down. So we just looked at each other and said, it's time we can't put him through it no more. That must have been incredibly hard. You never expected it, were you long kids? No, we was just numb at the time. We, no. We didn't even know what was happening. They stood behind the bed, so all the doctors and nurses... And within a minute, about a minute and a half, he'd gone, hadn't he? Yeah. Cameron Wellington died on November the 19th, less than a month ago. Could his life and the lives of other COVID victims have been saved if the second national lockdown had taken place earlier? The Sunday Times has published a major investigation looking into this very question. At the helm of the investigation were Jonathan Calvert. Hello, I'm the editor of the Sunday Times Insight team. And George Arbuthnot. Hi, I'm the deputy editor of the Sunday Times Insight team. This is the fifth part of an ongoing series in which the Insight team have managed to uncover what was happening behind the scenes in Westminster as the pandemic gripped the country. We've spoken to scientists, inside sources, politicians, economists and doctors and bereaved families. And from those conversations, they've pieced together an alarming picture. It reveals a government that has not learnt from its mistakes and has not been listening to its own scientists. And our headlines today, a stark warning that cases of coronavirus are growing in the UK as 3,500 infections are recorded for the second day in a row. It's a story that will begin in late September. There was increasing concern about the rising number of infections in the UK, which were, were shooting up. The Prime Minister had had an evening visit from the two people that would later be labelled by some newspapers as Professors Doom and Gloom. That was Patrick Balance and Chris Whitty, the chief scientific officer and the chief scientific advisor. Their message that day was that hospitalizations were going up and cases were, were going up fast and that if nothing was done soon, there would soon be a death rate of between 200 and 500 a day, which at the time, given that the death rate through the summer had gone down, was alarming. And their simple advice was that there should be a circuit breaker lockdown just to get the thing back under control. The Prime Minister seemed to take this advice. It would have only been a short one, a two-week two one, but it would have been enough to just get the infections back under control again because they were in the exponential phase of their rise. And, and once that happens, within weeks, thousands become many, many thousands. It's, it's quite frightening. Infection numbers were rising, but the government was split. Battle lines were being drawn between the health of the nation and the health of the economy. One man, 
was firmly fighting for the latter. We cannot allow the virus to take hold. We must prevent the strain on our NHS becoming unbearable. But we must also acknowledge the stark reality of the economic and social impacts of another national lockdown. Rishi Sunak, who was the Chancellor, what had happened to the economy over the summer was that we'd absolutely tanked. We were, you know, in desperate state. So Rishi Sunak had an opposite argument, which was, look, we can't go into lockdown because it's going to be really bad for jobs and for businesses. It's just going to cause further economic damage. And he had a meeting on, on the Friday evening of that week with Boris Johnson, in which he kind of made his views clear. But out of that meeting, an idea seems to have come. Up until this point, the government had always been saying, we must follow the science, uh, we're following the science. It was, it was a repeated mantra. Well, we're guided by the science and everything that we do. And of course, we will be relying, as ever, on the science to inform us, as we have from the beginning. We followed the science throughout this, building on that science, and the science develops as we learn more about the virus. But what happens if your scientific advisers are telling you something you don't want to hear? They basically didn't like the scientific advisers who were advising them. Their advice was to go for an instant lockdown. And so, on the evening of Sunday the 20th of September, a secret meeting had been called. In Downing Street, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor gathered around a polished mahogany table. They were joined online by a scientist who was putting forward the advice from SAGE, the government's scientific advisory group for emergencies, and by three rather more surprising additions. Dialing into a Zoom call were the Oxford professors Sinutra Gupta and Carl Hennigan, and also a man who kind of became known as the kind of poster boy for herd immunity internationally, Anders Tegnell, who's the epidemiologist who runs the Swedish response to COVID. Oh, wow. Gupta says that she and Hennigan were each given 15 minutes in which they argued that a lockdown was unnecessary at the time, as the virus could be allowed to spread if those most vulnerable to serious illness were protected. And then you allowed the younger, healthier people to freely go about their lives and that would spread the virus until there was herd immunity. This wasn't the first time the government had considered a herd immunity approach. It was talked about back in March until a public outcry rendered it a policy taboo. The problem with herd immunity is, is that it has an awfully high death rate and so it's a very, very controversial policy. The Oxford University professors, Sunetra Gupta and Carl Hennigan, each gave 15-minute pitches, arguing that lockdowns were unnecessary. They had been lobbying very, very hard on, on the government. In fact, that week they'd written a letter to the government suggesting that they take a more kind of immunity-based approach while shielding the elderly. And that was very much their strong argument. They felt this was the only way to tackle the disease. And Anders Tegnell, Sweden's top epidemiologist, explained how his country controversially avoided a lockdown altogether. At the time, had been kind of heralded as a hero and those who believed that this was the, the correct way to tackle the virus because 
although Sweden had a very high death rate, everyone thought that it was going to achieve herd immunity and therefore it wouldn't have a second wave. And actually, that weekend <laughs> that Anders appeared before Boris Johnson, Sweden hadn't had its second wave, and now it has. Everyone can see that actually Sweden didn't get herd immunity and it's got a really, really bad situation, which is much worse than its Scandinavian neighbours. On that night, when those three people dialed into the Zoom call, at the end of the long mahogany cabinet table were Boris Johnson and next to him at his side was Rishi Sunak. And so, which is kind of odd because you would have thought that it would be the other key ministers. There was no health minister present. We don't absolutely know that because the people who were in the Zoom call can't see everyone in the room. Mm. What we know is that at the centre in the picture were Boris and Rishi Sunak, and they were the two people conducting the, the meeting. Were the members of SAGE who were dialling in, were they surprised to see Sunetra Gupta, Carl Hennigan and Anders Tegnell being part of this meeting? There was a SAGE scientist who was brought in, who was Professor John Edmonds. Now, Professor John Edmonds won't say what took place in the meeting because he, they were all asked to keep it secret. But his views were not much of a secret because that weekend, he and other people on the SPY-M modelling committee, this is a government advisory committee, sent a paper to the government's SAGE committee in which they predicted there would be a catastrophe with many lives lost unless the Prime Minister opted for a lockdown that weekend. And so his views were very clear. And after listening to all of this, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak went away and they called a meeting afterwards with their team. It seems at that point, they made the decision, against the advice of their own scientists, not to trigger another lockdown. It's quite a significant moment because this was a real kind of break with the strong advice that was coming from the government's own scientific committee. Uh, which said that a circuit breaker lockdown was urgently needed at this moment. It would appear that both Johnson and Sunak uh, decided that the economy was more important. Whether in the end that move did save the economy is, is highly questionable because as long as you have uh, a high number of infections, it just is impossible because what happens is that the infections rise and before you know it, hospitals are overflowing. And so uh, in order for any kind of economic revival to take place, you have to seriously get the virus under control, as they did in many other countries around the world. The cost of that decision was huge. If the Prime Minister had intervened that weekend, which is September the 20th, to keep infections at a level, there would have been around 1.3 million less infections. And depending on what you take to be the death rate for COVID, uh, which is anywhere between 0.5% or 1%, that would amount to something like between 7,000 and 13,000 deaths, which is an awful lot of people. And a lot of the, the scientists we've talked to feel that that could have been avoided had the Prime Minister just listened to their advice back at the end of September. George, give us an overview. How did we get to the stage where a second wave was imminent? in this country. Britain's first lockdown was one of the longest in Europe because so many people had become infected in March. Britain had more infections than any other major European country because of the late lockdown. 
But even then, when we started to lift the restrictions, we still had more infections than almost every other European country when they took the same action. So it meant that the, our scientists were incredibly nervous about us lifting restrictions. They were particularly concerned about lifting all of the restrictions at the same time. They wanted us to do them kind of one at a time so they could measure their effects. But on July the 4th, Super Saturday, the Prime Minister lifted uh, a whole raft of restrictions with the reopening of pubs, restaurants, theatres, cinemas, museums and hairdressers, all on the same day. Let's not blow it now. That was the plea from the Prime Minister on the eve of the reopening of pubs in England. First orders. They gathered early at the Sally Port Inn in Portsmouth. After more than 100 days, they got quite a thirst. And it became this kind of party day, basically. And NHS bosses have actually been warned to prepare for New Year's Eve level surges in demand for emergency services because of the predicted revelry. And what we can see is that from that week on, infections just went up from there. Although infection numbers were on the rise again, the government continued to ease the restrictions and they actively encouraged more mixing. I can announce today that for the month of August, we will give everyone in the country an eat-out-to-help-out discount. Meals eaten at any participating business, Monday to Wednesday, will be 50% off up to a maximum discount of £10 per head for everyone, including children. Eat-out-to-help-out was brought in in August, which has since been estimated to have increased COVID-19 cases between 8% and 17%. And the SAGE members that we've spoken to are extremely critical of that. They were not consulted about the effects of Eat Out to Help Out, where people were offered a £10 discount to go and eat in, in restaurants. One SAGE source said, It took a bribe from the Chancellor to make us go to restaurants. It wasn't about support for restaurants, otherwise it would have counted for takeaways. It was to break our fear, and it worked. We were obviously going to have to reverse that. It just seemed insane. The other policy that SAGE members were extremely worried about was the drive to get people back to work, which uh, was announced in July. There are fears struggling city centres may never recover if people don't return to their offices. Now is the time, says the government, for white-collar workers to go back to their desks. We're saying to people, um, it is now safe to return to work. Your employer uh, will have, should have, uh, carried out work to make your employment place COVID secure. The official advice is now return to your office if you can. But countless of them across the nation still stand idle. We can see that it was pretty effective. During the first lockdown, the levels of people attending work got down to 35% of normal levels. Whereas by September had gone up to 70%. Again, the experts we've spoken to say that would have driven transmission. And they found it hard to see why that was necessary, given that many people were working from home perfectly well. At one point, one minister was even suggesting that people might be made redundant if they didn't return to work, saying that their boss might not regard them in the same way as people who are going into the office. And that also seemed like an unnecessary threat. And at the same time, during summer, it suddenly felt as if 
travel and all the borders were sort of suddenly much more open again too. That's right. In early to mid-July, they lifted the restrictions on quarantining for 14 days if you'd been to another country. This was a particular concern for countries which had higher infection rates in the UK. So people were going to countries where they had much more likely to pick up the virus and then being allowed to return without quarantining. And this is particularly true of Spain, where it's obviously one of the most popular summer destinations. And in July, Britain had 6.8 cases per 100,000 people, while Spain had 25.9 cases per 100,000 people. And a study has shown that by September, the variant of virus that was being seen in new people who were testing positive, 50% of those had a new strain that had emerged in Spain in the spring. And that kind of 80% of people in Wales and Scotland. So it was extraordinary how this new strain that had been brought back from Spain in the summer had spread across Britain at an extraordinary rate. How concerned were you watching all of these changes being implemented in a very short space of time? We could see that in the first wave, obviously once infections started to increase, because of the exponential growth of it, it, it had just spread across the country unbelievably rapidly. According to the estimates from Imperial College, in the last few days before the first lockdown, there were hundreds of thousands of new infections every single day. I think it actually reached almost as, as high as 300,000 on, on, on the last day or two. So it was clear that as soon as you started lifting restrictions en masse, the potential for a second wave of, with exponential growth became <laughs> extremely high. And we were nervous about that. It's hard to blame people because the absolute message from the government was everyone must get back to their normal lives. We'll have more on what went wrong back in September and the impact it's had since in just a moment. But if you'd like to read more of the Insight team's in-depth investigations, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. After a summer of mixing, as infection rates rose, the government was given a series of stark warnings to do something about the numbers before they got out of control. So Patrick Vallance, the government's chief scientific advisor, had commissioned a worst-case scenario report, which was setting out what could happen if there was a second wave of the virus in the winter. And it was very clear that if there was a second wave was allowed to arise, there could be 120,000 deaths during the second wave, which would put the first wave in the shade. And it also drew attention to other countries that had had uh, much better outcomes from the, from the first wave. So they pointed to Australia and New Zealand, who had managed to keep their total deaths to very low levels. I think New Zealand's 25 deaths, and Australia's only had 908. Yet their economies had also been far less damaged than ours had. It made clear that maintaining the control of the virus seemed to leave a country in the best of all worlds. Beyond the advice from SAGE and the chief scientific advisers, there were other early warnings that were sounding the alarm. The government had refused to carry out an inquiry into the pandemic to try and learn the lessons during the summer. But the all-party parliamentary group on coronavirus had done so. It's made up of 58 MPs from all different parties, including the Conservative Party. And they've actually received more than 1,000 written evidence submissions from different scientists and public health experts and frontline medical workers. And they came to a very clear conclusion that an urgent introduction of what they called a zero COVID strategy, which was suppressing cases right down to the lowest possible level, would save lives and benefit the economy. And they actually wrote a letter to the Prime Minister in August setting that out, but they received no reply. The warnings were flooding in. The infection rates were rapidly rising. And in Downing Street, the response was to call that fateful meeting on a Sunday evening in late September. It was unclear whether the government would learn that lesson until that crucial September the 21st decision when Sage had absolutely clearly said we must have a circuit breaker and made clear that it would both save lives and mean the restrictions would have to be in place for a shorter period, which would obviously be better for the economy. And... That was when their policy was tested and the Prime Minister wavered and in the end sided with his Chancellor. And it's the Chancellor who seems to have been most keen to avoid what the scientists, the cross-party groups of politicians were espousing. Even the World Bank in May had published a report entitled The Sooner the Better, which showed that countries in Europe and Central Asia that acted earlier to stem the virus's spread have suffered less damage to their economies and fewer deaths. This advice was coming from all quarters and you'd have thought that the Chancellor might have paid attention to the World Bank, but he didn't. How has that stance played out now in terms of the data that we can see around the second wave of coronavirus? Well, by September the 16th, for example, infections had risen to 4,000 a day, which was almost eight times higher than they had been in the middle of July. Then the Prime Minister ignored the call for a circuit breaker. And by the end of October, 
the government spy modelling committee had estimated that infections had actually reached 90,000 a day, which is a incredibly high figure. The consequences in terms of allowing the virus to spread across the country is absolutely clear. I should add that after Boris decided not to go for a lockdown in late September, this was clearly frustrating the government's chief scientists, Witty and Valance, and they did an extraordinary thing the next morning. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Patrick Valance, the government chief scientific advisor, and I'm here with uh, Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer. And we wanted to give you an update on where we see the epidemic at the moment. They called a press conference on their own without any government ministers and against a kind of sombre grey background. They kind of made this prediction that... You would end up with something like 50,000 cases in the middle of October per day. 50,000 cases per day would be expected to lead a month later. Valence was very kind of circumspect about it and said this is not necessarily estimates, but given where we are at the moment, and we believe that the virus is doubling every week, then this is where we could well be. And they were absolutely vilified in some sections of the media the following week. They were accused of scaremongering. They were um, described by one Tory MP as Messrs uh, witless and unbalanced. And... The funny thing about all of that is that, sure enough, in mid-October, Balance had predicted that it would be 50,000. And in fact, all the data suggests that it was at least 46,000, which is only 4,000 out. And actually, some studies put it the infection rate at that time as 73,000. So they were absolutely right about the number of infections. Only the deaths they got wrong, really, it was much, much higher than they had predicted. By mid-November, the figures were something like 430 deaths a day. Instead of announcing a circuit-breaker lockdown, the government announced a series of control measures. The government decided to bring in some very light-touch measures. They were some small extensions to the rule of six about gymnasiums and things like that. They also introduced a curfew of 10pm, which I, mean, I think only this week Valence has admitted had no scientific basis and it was more a kind of symbolic thing. And in fact, actually, if anything, it caused more problems because people were being chucked out of pubs and restaurants at unusually early times, and then they would all pack onto kind of buses and tubes and trains and all those sort of things. And the third thing that they encouraged was they suggested that people might work from home now, which was a complete reversal because only three weeks earlier, the Prime Minister had been really urging people to go back to work. Eventually, the Prime Minister did announce a second national lockdown in November. What brought them to that decision? What did it take? The main problem for him was that the numbers of COVID patients in hospitals was ramping up really fast. I mean, even by October the 8th, SAGE had received evidence that infections and hospital admissions were exceeding the worst case scenarios. And we understand that on the Friday, October the 30th, Sir Simon Stevens, who's head of the NHS. So we understand that a presentation was given to the Downing Street Operations Committee, which involves Johnson, Sunak, Matt Hancock and Michael Gove, delivered an unequivocal message that hospitals would be overrun in every part of England within weeks if nothing was done to stem the infections. That week, the SPY-M committee had made one final appeal to the Prime Minister to try and get him to understand that failing to act would harm both the economy and lives. 
because he kept saying all the way through that there was a trade-off between the two, but that's not the way the experts saw it. And then on that Friday, after Simon Stevens delivered that message, the Prime Minister then did apparently decide to lock down and initially planned to do it the following week. But even then, with a decision to lock down made, there were fears behind the scenes that there would be another wobble and they'd end up repeating what had happened in September. And so somebody within his cabinet or team leaked the news that he'd made that decision, which then bounced him into announcing it the following day on the Saturday, which was Halloween. So now is the time to take action because there is no alternative. And from Thursday until the start of December, you must stay at home. Was there a danger that he wouldn't have if, if it hadn't leaked? That's what they feared, was that, you know, perhaps the, the Chancellor or someone at the Treasury would persuade him to continue to not bring in the lockdown. And, I mean, it's, it's speculation, but that's certainly been the theory why people think that, that the leak was motivated. And George, did the second lockdown do enough to curb COVID? The second lockdown brought down cases significantly. Infections had reached 30,000 at its height on one day. And it did bring them down significantly with infections down to around the 11,000 figure close to the end of lockdown. But even that was double the number of positive cases that were being seen on September the 21st when the scientists had first said the government should take action. If Johnson had acted then, cases would have been driven far lower than that, which would have given the track and trace system a much better chance of being effective and therefore allow us to safely lift further restrictions. At the end of last week, more than 21,000 people a day were testing positive with COVID-19. And if you assume a 1% death rate, then that's going to end up being more than 100 deaths further down the line. And if you continue to have that kind of infection rate and you're having more than 100 deaths every day, it racks up the death toll unbelievably. It's just tragedy after tragedy. I mean, you speak to the families, you know, their loved ones who had many years of life left in them. They just are just so angry that their loved ones have died unnecessarily as they've seen it. It feels worse every day, to be honest. The tragedy is particularly acute for families who've lost loved ones in the delay, like Cameron Wellington's parents. They've got five other children and a grandson. But if it weren't for them, I don't think I would have carried on, to be honest. But I've got it for them. And I think you feel the fact exactly the same, don't you? Yeah, really. We've got to carry on. It seems absolutely senseless. He was, he was shouting at the telly the other day, watching Liverpool play. And like, now we, we got his funeral on Tuesday. And like, we just keep going into his room. And it's just down the side now, more. We're looking at a T-shirt on, on the back of his chair. It just don't feel real, to be honest. Just trying to adjust to this new nightmare that we're in. Because that's what our life is now, ain't it? It's knowing that he had so much potential and ambition and he could have achieved it and we've just he was robbed of it and we've been robbed of it. We won't see him like, grow up and have a family. Anything like that, it's just so cruel. For Jane and Norman Wellington, they believe if the government had acted earlier, 
it could have made all the difference for Cameron and for so many other families. Instead of like trying to please everybody, they know the numbers was going up. They should have done it there and then. They've they've put people through that much, losing their loved ones and everything, just to please. Just to keep the economy going, really. When, really, if it weren't for the people, there'd be no economy in the first place. They chose the economy over people, don't they? They're just a statistic. That's what it is. When they pass the figures over to the government, they won't even say Cameron's name. It'll, It'll be just a number. Just be another one that died. But... Cameron I'm just a number. He's, he was our child. Like, the government's got a lot to answer for. The second so-called lockdown one, even a lockdown, was it? Everybody was going about like normal life. I mean, they had the scientists saying, we need to lock down, we need to lock down now. And and he still he still stretched it out. I mean, if you're going to employ scientists to, to, to like, tell you, at least listen to them. Put people first, because without people, he ain't got a country anyway. It's like people can't wait to get out again. and It's like dogs out of a trap. They're running straight into it, all mingling. And that, what's that going to do again now? I mean, everybody's going mad about Christmas and they want to be around their loved ones. Well, that's fair enough, and I agree. Everybody should be around their loved ones. But you can't be around them when they're dead. If you lose somebody through COVID or any other disease, you can't be around them again. So... For the sake of five days of just shutting, like reopening everything for five days. What's the point? Cameron's funeral will be held on Tuesday under COVID restrictions. It's robbed us of the, and not even a nice funeral for him. Yeah, we can't even do that. When the pandemic is over, the Wellingtons will celebrate Cameron's life properly with their friends and family. We'll all have a, a get together when it's safe, yeah. when it's over. We just want everybody to be safe, to be honest. And people have said to me, you can't imagine what you're going through. And I'm so well, that's a good thing, really, because you don't want to be. You don't want to know what this feels like. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Jane and Norman Wellington, the parents of Cameron Wellington, who died last month. We were also joined by the Sunday Times Insight Investigations team, Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot. You can read more of their work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers today were Leona Hamid and Edward Drummond, with special thanks to the Sunday Times reporter Shanti Das. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you can, please do leave us a review. And if you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for stories that you think we should be covering or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.